0: Let's just pick up in chapter 6, verse 1. And the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now, the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Please, let us go to the Jordan. Let every man take a beam from there, and let us make there a place where we may dwell. So he answered, Go. Then one said, Please consent to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So we went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. So you see, Elisha was not only a prophet, but he was also a teacher. And when you come across the phrase, sons of the prophets, it's referring to Elisha's students. So these are the people that he was teaching. He had essentially established or developed a school of ministry. And it appears it's time to expand. They need to make a bigger building because it's growing. Elisha consents to the expansion. He agrees to go with his students down to the Jordan River to cut down some trees so they can build a new building. Now, here's what I think is really cool. Even in the darkness of Israel, the Word of God is growing, the school of ministry that Elisha has is growing. They need a bigger building. They need more space. The word of God is still going forth. So even though the king is not serving the Lord, even though the majority of the people are not serving the Lord, as a culture, you would look at them and say they're far from the Lord, but God's word is still working. God's prophet is still, and and there's still people being drawn to the word of God. That's a pretty cool thing. The word of God is being taught and the school or the ministry or whatever you want to call it, the church, whatever you want to call it, is expanding. It's growing. God is working. He's doing something there. But their building project that kind of gets off to a rough start. Look at verse 5. But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. And he cried out and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. One of Elijah's students is there chopping away at the tree when the axe head flies off and falls into the Jordan River, plunk, and you just see it sink down to the bottom. Well, during this time, iron was pretty expensive. It was a commodity to, to have, it was a tool. It wasn't something, if your axe breaks or you lose your axe head, you would just simply go down to Lowe's or to Ace or somewhere else and just buy another one, that's the way it works. It's not the way it worked for them. It was a commodity, it was something they had to have. It may have been the only one they had. They may have been taking turns chopping, and all of a sudden, bloop, there it goes, and he says to Elisha, Elisha, hey, alas, master, it was even worse, I borrowed it from somebody. It wasn't even ours. We borrowed it to do this. And now that it's borrowed, we can't even return it. Look at verse 6. So the man of God said, where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick and he threw it in there and he made the iron float. Therefore, he said, pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and he took it. I like this. Elisha cuts off a stick, he throws it into the water. You can just imagine the guy's all upset, he lost the axe head. Master, what are we going to do? Where did it fall? Right right there, it went down right, right there, that's it. And he cuts off a stick, he goes, bloop. And all of a sudden, here it comes to the top of the water. Just floating, there it is. And Elisha says, alright, pick it up, pick it up, there you go. Just cut it off, just like this. What does this all mean? What is it? When you come to a section of Scripture like this, you go, all right, there's got to be a deeper meaning here. There's got to be something more. And I can tell you, when it comes to the interpretation of this section, Bible scholars, they're all over the board. They have all different kinds of interpretations, all different kinds of meanings, and sometimes I think it's good, well, let's just stick with, to the basic meaning. There was a need, and the, and the Lord showed up and met the need. You know, it, it was rather simple. And rather try to explain all these different views to you I think it's always best to take the simplest and most straightforward view. Elisha, what did he do? He performed a miracle, right? It was a miracle of retrieving something. It was a miracle of retrieval. He retrieved something that was once lost. He recovered what everyone else thought was lost and gone forever. So there's this axe head. They think it's lost and gone forever. And Elisha says, no, no, I can retrieve that. How, you, how could you possibly retrieve that? You don't know where that's at. No, oh, no, I can make it float. No, you can't. Watch. And the boop, there it goes. So he performs this miracle of retrieval. He does it, how? By throwing a stick into the water. He throws the stick into the water. The axe head begins to float. When he throws the stick into the water, here's the amazing thing. That which was lost was now found. That which was unable to be seen is now seen. That which was missing is now in plain sight. It had reappeared, and it was put back into use, no doubt. You see, it was once lost, it now reappears, and now it's able to be put back into, the, into use, to be used by these guys as they build this new home or this new school or whatever they're building. But let me ask you this. What things have been lost in our lives? Certainly you've lost some things, and I'm not just talking about your car keys. Maybe there's some rusted-out talents in your life that you haven't used in a while. Maybe it's a marriage that, well, the love seems like it's been lost. Maybe it's, you know, who knows what it is. Maybe it's your mind. You feel like, I've lost my mind. You know, it could be anything that you feel like you've, you've lost. Maybe it's through alcohol and drugs. You find people, their minds are burned up. It's gone. What things have, has sin destroyed in somebody's life? You ever watch somebody go down the road of, of habitual sin, and you watch their life just gets worse and, worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And it's so hard to watch because you know the answer. You know how to correct it. All of these things that I just mentioned, they're all borrowed too, just like the axe head was borrowed. They don't really belong to us. Your gifts and talents don't really, really—they're they're just they're, you borrowed them, the Lord gave them to you. You're, you're using them, they, they really belong to him. It was the Lord that gives you the talents, the Lord that gave you your spouse. It was the Lord that gives you your mind, your innocence, your purity. It's the Lord that gives us so many things. And they're just essentially just borrowed to us. And then one day, God throws a stick into your life. He throws a stick, a piece of wood, in the shape of a cross. That which was lost is now found. That which is gone is now renewed. The cross in our life works the miracle of retrieval. Think about it. The cross gets thrown into your life. You believe on Jesus Christ. That which was lost, that which was gone, that which was old, that which was no longer useful, now all of a sudden becomes useful. That which was written off. I'm sure there were some scoffers. You don't think there were some guys in the back going, hey, ain't are never going to find that axe head. Iron don't float. They can only see our battleships today, right? It does float if you know how to make it float. The cross works the miracle of retrieval in our life. The Lord has retrieved us from our sin and shame and made us useful again. Isn't that good news? He's He's made us useful again. He's redeemed our mind. He's redeemed our talents, our marriages. He gives us a new heart. He's taken our redeemed self and given us a new life and a new purpose. All by a tree by a tree in the life of a believer what jesus did on the cross he took that which was lost and now it is found that's what he does for us the weight of sin is removed we are free to be useful again for the lord he doesn't just take it away because i got a whole new purpose for your life it's not just, all right, you're forgiven, now go live however you want. No, no, I've got a whole new way for you to live. I've got a whole new purpose. I've got a whole new path I'm going to send you on. You spent how many years following your own path? No, no, that's, not, that, that's great. I'm going to take all of your mistakes, all of your errors. I'm going to put them to good use now. If you'll just follow my path, if you'll just do what I want you to do, if you'll just live for me, the weight of sin is removed and we're free to be useful again for the Lord. Oh, the power of a tree. Can it really make an ax float? it can take that which was lost and make it found. It's done it in my life, and I know it's done it in many of your lives as well. As we come to verse 8, the king of Syria is at war with Israel. But the Israelites, they're not very well prepared. Look at verse 8. Now, the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. So if you didn't catch what was happening there, every time the Syrians make a strategic battle move, every time they move their military into a strategic position, God tells Elisha where they're going and what they're doing. And Elisha then in turn tells the king. So it's it's, it's this... it's the, the, this allows the king of Israel to counter the move. So the Syrians make a move. God tells Elisha what they're doing. Elisha tells the king, and the king makes a perfect counter to the move. He's got an inside tract, and it's happening over and over again. So much so that the king of Syria goes, who's the traitor among us? Somebody's telling them what we're doing. There's no way that they just keep guessing right on every one of our movements. Somebody's got to be telling them what they're doing. So there must be a traitor among us, and he gets his men together. And he says, all right, who is it? Who's the traitor among us? Look at verse 11. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called his servants and he said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom." None of us are traitors, king. None of us are for Israel. It's the prophet Elisha. You remember the guy that healed Naaman of his leprosy? You remember the guy? Yeah, That he's telling, he's telling, Elisha's telling the king of Israel what you're saying in your bedroom. He's telling every word that you're speaking. There's nothing you can do that isn't known to him because the Lord God of Israel is revealing it to him. It's not us. Talk about a military surveillance program. <laughs> Pretty hard to beat that one, isn't it? With all the technology available today, all the military satellites, mapping programs, and detection system, nothing beats divine surveillance. Do you know how intricate our surveillance systems are today? Do you know that in, in, in and I'm just going to share what's, um, I'm, I'm, I think I can share this. It's not, I'm, I don't have any classified information or anything. They, they have planes that can fly over a desert area every day and tell you if a rock's been moved using mapping software. They can tell you that rock was moved three inches to the left or three inches to the right. To know if somebody placed an IED or things like that. The surveillance that we have in the military is amazing. It's unbelievable what they're doing, what they're providing. That's nothing compared to what God sees. Nothing. As much as we have, you, couldn't, you can't beat that because God's telling them everything. So how does the king of Syria respond? Oh, let me say this real quick. Divine surveillance. We don't think about it very often. Oftentimes we find ourselves worried about what Big Brother's watching, right? Big Brother's watching me. I think we'd do better if we quit worried about what Big Brother was watching, and remember the Lord is watching. Because he sees what we do in our bedroom. He sees what we do when no one's around. He sees what we think in our minds. He sees the things that we cover up to be good Christians, and we don't want to come out in public, that we hold back. He sees those things. So it's not so much Big Brother, it's what's the Lord see in my life? When he's surveilling my life, and he is, what does he see? The king of Syria responds this way after he hears this in verse 13. He said, go, see where he is, that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, surely he is in Dothan. In other words, the king says, go find him and arrest him. I want him. I want him. He's, I'll, take, I'll take care of this problem. Go get him. Verse 14, therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and they surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and he went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servants said to him, Alas, my master, what do we do? What shall we do? It's a whole lot of effort just to bring one man in, isn't it? But if he's got the God of Israel telling him every move, didn't he think he would know they're coming? I mean, after all, he's telling him everything. Didn't he know the Lord would tell Elisha that he was coming? Now just picture this. You're one of Elisha's students. You wake up early in the morning. You're probably one of the devoted ones. You're going to go have your morning devotions, and you make your coffee, and you stroll out onto the porch with your coffee mug in hand. And all of a sudden, you look out over the your porch happens to be on the front on the wall of the city, and all of a sudden, you look out and all, all those all you see is chariots, and armies, and Syrian army, and horsemen, and all of this stuff, and you're freaked out. So you're running to you go. I got to go wake up Elisha, and here he comes. Just he's he's falling apart. He's falling apart. He freaks out. He runs back to wake up Elisha, and he says, "Alas, my master." What do we do? You can just see Elisha. Don't worry about it. Stop. Elisha calmly responds in verse 16. I like it. Do not fear. Those words are strewn throughout the Bible, and oh, how we need to hear them. How often have we looked out over our life and been just falling apart over it, and we need to hear someone say, Do not fear. The Lord's got this. Elijah says, Do not fear. And he says, For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I can just see the servant responding, You're out. No, no. Eli, you don't understand. I was on the wall. I looked out. There, no, no. There's nobody with us. All we see is a Syrian army out there. There is nobody helping us. I don't know what you're talking about. There's nobody with us. Who are those that are with us? I love it. Elijah says, Don't fear. And you can, I could can just imagine the protest. Then he does something amazing. Oh, we need to learn to do it. What does he do? Verse 17, Elisha prayed. I like it. He prayed. He prayed. Lord, I'm all upset. I'm worried. I'm, I'm freaking out. What do I do? Elisha prayed. And this is what he prayed. Lord, I pray. Open the eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Wow, if we could only see that, right? If we could only see that. The servant is melting down. Elisha is calm, cool, and collected. Notice this prayer, though. Open the eyes of my servant so he can see what's unfolding. Elisha didn't say, change the situation, God. Elijah didn't say, make them all go away, Lord. He said, he didn't pray the situation would change. Instead, Elisha prayed that his servant's eyes would be open so he could see the reality of the situation. You see, he was only seeing part of the situation. He wasn't seeing the reality of the situation. This should be our prayer, too. This should be our prayer. Far too often, we ask the Lord to change our situation when we should pray, Lord, open my eyes so I can see the reality of what you're doing here. Because we forget about this whole other spiritual side of things, this whole spiritual realm that we can't see anything into. The servant's freaking out, having no idea the power of his God. No idea. Psalm 34, 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. The angel of the Lord encamps all around. That's you and me, those that are saved, around, all around those who fear the Lord and deliver them. In other words, I'll bet there's a few angels that know your name. They hang out with you. They sit around your house at night to make sure it's safe. They watch out for you. That's what we're seeing here. So often, people say that faith is blind. But the person of faith sees far more than what other people see. You see, the person that doesn't have the faith looks through secular eyes and they see the physical and the mental aspects of life. Their sight is sort of two-dimensional. But The spiritual person, the man who has faith or the woman who has faith, they look through spiritual eyes and they see a third dimension. They understand their vision includes the spiritual realm. And faith is what enables us to see the whole picture. It's when you look and you go, All right, Lord, I don't know what you're doing, but I know you're doing something. I know there's something happening here. The eyes of faith enable us to see what God is doing in the given situation that we're in. Elisha's servant didn't know what to do because he was looking only at the physical. He was responding in the mental and never took into account the spiritual. And Elisha said, that's your shortcoming. That's your downfall. Mm -hmm. Lord, would you open his eyes so he can see the spiritual side of things? And when he did, can you imagine what that servant's jaw dropped as it hit the floor? Look at all the people that are for us. We're going to kick your butts. There's nothing against us. We're coming after you now. But just a few minutes earlier, he was going... Help us. We're dying. They're coming after us. They're going to kill us. What are we going to do? We're done. We can't make it anymore. Cry stop. Oh, that happens to us too, doesn't it? Lord, open our eyes so that we can see the reality of what you're doing in our life. May we not just focus on the obstacle in front of us. May we see that God is at work in a bigger picture. He's got eternity in mind and he's developing, he's creating us and he's preparing us. Verse 18 So when the Syrians came down to him Elisha prayed to the Lord and said strike the people I pray with blindness and he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha when they made their move here they come you were fine standing off the distance but now here they come and Elisha says Lord would you just strike them all blind make them all blind would you just just, go ahead do what you got to do make them blind and it says he did it look at what happens next verse 19 now Elisha said to them Wait, wait, this is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. Who are they looking for? Elisha, right? They're looking for Elisha. And Elisha goes up to them because they're blind. They can't see. Now, we don't know if they're completely blind or whether it's just blurry vision or whatever. He goes, no, no, uh, no, no you're, you're in the wrong place. Let me take you to where you need to be. So here, come on, and follow me, and, and I'll take you there. And he takes them right into the city of Samaria were now were they friendly no he brings them right into the enemy's hometown to the capital city he walks them right in their blind right down the road he they came down main street to see the king he, here he is here's Elisha bringing him down bringing them down verse 20 so it was when they had come to Samaria Elisha said Lord open their eyes of these men that they may see and the Lord opened their eyes and they saw and they were inside Samaria uh-oh now what do we do Verse 21, the king of Israel saw them. He said to Elisha, my father, shall I kill him? Shall I kill? What do I do with them? Shall I kill them? Verse 22, but he answered, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away. And they went to their master. So, band, so the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. Wow. Don't kill them. Feed them. Bless them. Let them go back home. They're not going to bother you anymore. At least for a little while. Elijah was known for his power and his judgment. Remember when he called down fire from heaven? What did he do to the prophets of Baal? He hacked them up with a sword, right? Here's Elisha is showing grace and mercy as he instructs the king to feed his captives, feed these people, and then let them go home and they're going to leave you alone. And it does. It says that they went in, the, the, the raiders came no more into the land of Israel. The kindness, this kind of kindness brings peace with it, but unfortunately it's not going to last very long. Look at verse 24. And it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army, and he went up and he besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria. And indeed, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cob of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. What's happening? Syria has surrounded Samaria, and they will not allow anyone to come in or to go out. They're they're, they're besieging the city. So what they're doing is they're cutting off their supply lines. They're cutting off their food. Nobody's coming in. Nobody's out. The supply chain has been dismantled. The plan was to cut off the food chain so that they couldn't eat. If they couldn't eat, eventually what would happen? If they could wait them out, they would starve to death. That would either bring death upon the whole city, which then they would go in and take it, or it would bring surrender upon the whole city, in which case they would go in and take it either way. They were, they were waiting them out. As they became famished, and what as the food supply diminished, what they're saying is it was selling for a premium. It was normally these things, a donkey's head and, and, and dove droppings, they, they were unedible. You wouldn't eat these things. But yet when you get so hungry, you'll, do, you'll eat anything. You'll eat things that you wouldn't think of. In these conditions... A donkey's head is 80 shekels. Of, uh, what he's talking about there is about a pint of dove droppings. Now think about that. A pint of dove droppings. That's, that's dinner. That's lunch. You're going, that's disgusting. I'd rather starve to death. Well, you got that choice. You got that option. Some scholars suggest that dove droppings is better translated as carob beans. Either way, the situation's bad in, in Samaria. They're not eating, they're starving, whatever it is, they're hungry, and they're turning, and they're doing anything, and things are only going to get worse. Before we read the next section, at what point would you in this turn back to the Lord? I mean, there's got to be a point, there's there's got to, if I was in Israel, I think I would say, hey, it's time to turn back to God. We've left God, He, he always provided for us, but they don't do that, things get worse for them. Look at verse 26. Then as king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the lord does not help you, where can I find help for you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? So the king's being sarcastic. There's a woman who cries out and says, Help, you're our leader, you're our king. Can you help something? And he says, If the lord can't help you, how could I possibly help you? If the Lord's not going to help you, if the Lord does not help you, if the Lord's not going to help you, how could I help you? From the threshing floor, it's bare. From the wine press, it's empty. There's nothing for me to help you with. And probably realizing he's being a little sarcastic, the king says in verse 28, the king said to her, what's troubling you? Now we're going to read what is probably one of the most troubling verses in the Bible. And she answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him. today and we will eat my son tomorrow so we boiled my son and ate him and I said to her on the next day give your son that we may eat him but she has hidden her son how on earth do you come to this place how, how, how is it that you can come to the place how, how what kind of justification or rationalization could you ever use to come to this place now Perhaps the second woman is trying to save her son. Perhaps she just wants him for herself and doesn't want to share it. Whatever the case is, we're not told here. What we are told is the king is disgusted and he's appalled by it. How do you get to this place of hunger where the hunger has been so great that women are resorting, moms are resorting to eating their children to stay alive? Would would the fact that the child is going to die anyways bring you? I don't see how that, in my mind it doesn't even compute. How could you do that? But then again, I've never been in a situation to ever be that hungry. I'm not, I, I don't, I don't, I, I think this, I, I would repent. I, I would say, Lord, forgive me. I've been sidetracked somewhere a long time ago. Something's happened here. Look at the king's response in verse 30. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the woman that he tore his clothes and he passed by on the wall. The people looked, and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body. And he said, God, do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. The king is disturbed. He realizes the condition of his kingdom. It's falling apart, what women and people are resorting to. He rips his clothes. He rents his clothes. He's very disturbed by it. And yet, who does he place the blame on? On Elisha, on the man of God. He's deeply grieved. He's angry. But notice who he's angry with. He's angry with God, essentially, or with the man of God. That's why he's angry. He wasn't angry with himself and his leadership. He wasn't angry with the sin of Israel. He wasn't angry with the people of Israel. He feels bad for them. He was angry with the prophet of God, the man who represents God, because he probably believed that Elisha called for the famine that was in the land. He probably believed that's what was taking place. Sometimes people you and I included, can find ourselves in difficult and desperate circumstances. And they, and just like we can sometimes, we get angry with God or angry with all the wrong people with all the wrong things. You see, our focus can become against the very thing that we're facing or the person that brought about the thing. We can be angry at God. We can be angry at the police. We can be angry at our coworker, our family and friends. We can, we can focus our anger somewhere against someone on something when we're missing the whole point of it they can be angry with our circumstance but just like the king and we do the same thing we never stop to consider our own sin we never stop to consider what's my part in all this what's my role on this you see had the king stopped to consider that he would have remembered some things They never stop to consider wait a minute it's my poor leadership that got us here it's my sin that got the land of the country here my bad decisions my bad my failures but right away we always just like he does he wants to find somebody to blame it's never my fault it's not me it's not somebody else's fault listen carefully you'll never resolve the problems in your life by blaming everybody around you it'll never happen You'll never resolve them that way. The king of Israel was blaming Elisha. Elisha probably thinking he did what Elijah did and prayed for the famine in, in Samaria. But the scriptures don't tell us that Elisha did that at all. Do you know what Israel's real problem is? I want to expose it to you because it's the same thing that we have. It's the same problem that we have. Would you turn with me over to Deuteronomy chapter 28? Let me show you what the problem that israel has let me show you who's responsible for the condition that they're in in deuteronomy chapter 8 we find a promise from god to the nation israel and this promise contains a blessing and a cursing a blessing and a cursing a blessing if they're obedient and they follow the ways of god and a cursing if they do not obey the voice of the lord and they turn away from his laws and his statutes Right? It's very, very simple. God says, I will bless you if you follow me and keep my commandments. If you don't, I will curse you. And he lists out verse after verse of you know, family and all, verse after verse after cursing. But I want to draw your attention to chapter 28, verse 52. It says this, they, that's their enemies. They shall besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust come down throughout all your land. They shall besiege you at all your gates throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. Notice verse 53. You shall eat the fruit of your own body, the flesh of your sons and your daughters whom the Lord God has given you in the siege and desperate straits in which the enemy shall distress you. The sensitive and very refined man among you will be hostile towards his brother, toward the wife of his bosom, toward the rest of his children whom he leaves behind so that he will not give any of them the flesh of his children whom he will eat because he has nothing left in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at all of your gates the king he's mad at god he's shaking his fist as god he's essentially mad at god when it's his leadership than that of his father that have held, have led the people away from the lord they failed to follow the lord and keep his commandments it's not like the lord didn't tell him what was going to happen he made it very clear if you obey you'll be blessed if you don't obey you're going to be cursed. And he even goes so far here as to say in the book of Deuteronomy, you're going to eat the flesh of your kids. And boy, we see that unfolding several hundred years later, don't we? The Lord told him it would happen. But what about us? Please don't misunderstand. I'm not implying or not saying that every difficult situation in our life is a result of us failing to follow the voice of the Lord. But I am saying that when things get difficult, you're angry about the condition of your life or about what's going on, before you shake your fist at God, before you get mad at God, take a long, hard look and see what the reality is of the things that got you in this situation. Take a long, hard look at your own life. Take a long, hard look and see what it is. Ask the Lord to open your eyes to the whole situation like he did to the servant. Open my eyes to what's happening, Lord. What got me here? You just might find that it's you who wandered from the Lord. It's you that have made bad choices. You have done things, and you're just simply reaping the consequence of your decision. See, please, understand, I'm not saying every bad situation is that in our life. Sometimes the Lord does allow sickness and things like that for whatever reasons that he will reveal to us later. may never reveal to us. But oftentimes we find ourselves, when we're getting mad at God over something, when we're blaming somebody else, our coworker, our family, our brother, our sister, mom, dad, whatever it is, we're the problem. We've made a series of bad choices. We've done some things that weren't in accordance with the will of God and with the word of God. And then those consequences come back and we look and we want to get mad at God when instead we should be looking at ourselves. When your life is falling apart, the first person you look at is yourself. What am I doing? Where have I been? Where have my choices been? What, 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 is, what is it that's going on here? Lord, open my eyes to the situation. Here's the beauty of this. When you read this and you read these cursings in 28, and I'm not going to read the whole thing for you for the sake of time, but there's some things in there you go, that's just horrible, that's just miserable. But if you keep reading and you come through chapter 29 and then you come through chapter 30, you're going to realize this, the cursing doesn't have to continue and it doesn't have to be the end of Israel. It doesn't, it's not where it stops. This is the end of the book. It, it's not over right here. It's not like, well, oh, well, you curse God, that's it. No, no more left for you. No, Israel has hope, and so do we. Look at chapter, flip over page, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1. A page or two, maybe. Now it shall come to pass, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today. You and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered it for you. Let me see if I can make this very, very clear by giving you an example. If there's a person or man or woman who's abused their body with drugs and alcohol, suddenly they find themselves in physical pain, mental issues, other symptoms, don't shake your fist at God. It's not God's fault. Much of what you're experiencing is just stemming from your failure to recognize the truth. you failed to follow the Lord and to obey the word of God. You may have been disobedient. Maybe you've denied God in his word, but yet you're blaming him. On the other hand, like I said before, just because you're suffering with pain or illness or something going on doesn't mean you necessarily did anything wrong. But what we need to do is come to the place where we say, Lord, open up my eyes to the root of the problem in my life open up my eyes to what's really happening. Oftentimes we look at all of our symptoms, just like we do when we go to the doctor's office. Treat my symptom. No, no, I want, a, I want a doctor who's going to treat my problem, not just my symptom. I don't want the headache to go away. I want to know why the headache started in the first place. You see, a lot of times doctors can't tell you that, but God knows. When you go to the Lord and you say, Lord, I have some symptoms in my life. Here's my symptoms. I have this problem and that problem and this problem and this problem. Will you reveal to me the root of those symptoms? Will you reveal what's causing? Why would he not want to reveal that to you? But you got to go and ask him. And you've got to be willing to do something about it. I've said it many times. Why would he reveal it to, if he, to you if you're not going to do anything about it? And I think the Lord, our creator, says, I made you for a purpose. I want to show you why this is happening so that you can correct it, so that we can correct it. In my, I'll give you the Holy Spirit, the power to correct it, to make those changes. You see, if we've rejected God or we've failed to follow his word, it's us that needs to repent. It's us that needs to turn away and say, Lord, forgive me. I find myself in this situation. It doesn't mean that all of our our consequences are going to be taken away. But all of a sudden we realize we're back in relationship as restored with the Lord. And I can endure the consequences and realize they're not his fault, they're my fault. You know, we blame everything on the Lord, don't we? We blame sickness, we blame disease. And I want you to remember something. When God turned the world over to Adam and Eve, it was perfect. There was no sin and no death. There was none of it. It was was Eve who chose to sin and then bring it to Adam, and that brought the downward spiral of mankind. God didn't turn it over that way. God didn't make, well, why did he make us a choice? Because a choice brings love. We had to have an opportunity to show that we loved him. We must be the ones who say, Lord, open my eyes to what's really going on in my life. I've seen many, many people shake their fist at God, curse God, walk away from God, and from the outside looking in, I can simply say, you're the problem. You're the one that got yourself in this situation. You made the bad choices. Why are you blaming God? And oftentimes that person will come back. Why are you judging me? Why are you judging me? I'm not judging. I'm just sharing what I see. I'm not condemning you to hell. I'm just trying to be a friend and share with you what I see. While all this is going on, what's Elisha doing? Look at what it says. Verse 32. But Elisha was sitting in his house. Probably got the remote control, watching TV, just hanging out, watching. No, he wouldn't be watching Christian television or anything. He's sitting in his house. The elders, they're sitting with him. I would imagine he's probably praying. And the king sent a man ahead of him. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Do you see how this son of a murderer? That's, he's talking about the king there. Elisha's description of the king is a son of a murderer. Do you see how the son of a murderer, speaking of his father Ahab, do you see how the son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? They're coming to kill me. Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door. Hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? He's going to be right behind him. And while he was still talking with them, there was the messenger coming down to him. And the king said, Surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Again, the king continues to blame God. Why should I wait on God any longer? Why should, you ever got to that point? Why should I wait any longer? I'm tired of waiting on the Lord. The Lord's got me in a waiting situation. Trust me, it's a lot better to keep waiting than to abandon things. It's a lot better to keep waiting because the moment you give up, you might be one step away from watching a miracle what God's gonna do. Because really, when you say, why should I wait any longer? What are you saying? God doesn't know what he's doing. God doesn't have the power to fix this. God doesn't have the power to change this. God God can't help in this situation. Why should I wait any longer? And look at chapter 7, verse 1. Elisha said, all right, I'm going to give you the word of the Lord. You ready? Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow, about this time, a sea, that's eight gallons of fine flour, will be sold for a shekel, about 60 cents and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Wait a minute, we were just buying donkeys, heads, and, drug dopings, and drug, d- dove droppings. Now he's selling flour and barley at the gate of Samaria. Look at verse 2. So an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And he said, In fact, you will see it with your eyes but you shall not eat of it. This is unbelievable. How could such a dramatic change happen? In other words, the the officer saying, if God would make windows in heaven, in other words, God can't even do what you're saying. Hey, man of God, God, your God doesn't have that kind of power. Don't you know people are buying donkey's heads and dove droppings or beans, whatever you want to call them. People are paying crazy amounts just for anything. They're eating their own kids. How can you tell me that in the gate of this city tomorrow, they're going to be selling flour and barley for next to nothing? How is that possible? It's, it's a, God couldn't even do something like that. he? Well, we're out of time. <laughs> and there's no way I can get through the rest of this story tonight. So we're going to have to pick it up next week. But bef- Two weeks. But before we do, I want to show you something. There were two blind people or two groups of blind, one blind person, one group of blind people in today's message. The Syrians, they were totally blinded and led right into their enemy's camp because they didn't have a clear picture of the man they were following or the idea they were following. They didn't have a clear picture of who was leading them. The other one was the servant who was supposed to be a follower of the Lord. He was a student of Elisha. He was supposed to know what was going on. He, he was only partially blinded. He didn't see the full scope of of what god was doing i believe that could be us too you see it's possible for us to not realize what or who is leading us oftentimes in our culture you know who's leading you yourself it's ourselves that lead us it's our flesh we do what we want to do we want things the way that we want it it's going to be my way or the highway no one's going to tell me what to do who's leading you you are leading you be careful where you're leading yourself these men of the syrian army where were they led right into captivity right into the enemy's, their enemy's hands. You will lead yourself in the same way. The prophets, the servant, the prophet's servant, he's supposed to know this kind of stuff. He, he's the guy that's in church. He's in the discipleship group. He, he's the spiritual one. He's supposed to know this. He's the smart one. He, you know, he's the guy that's got the Bible and quotes the Bible verses. He, he knows all this. He's, he's in the school. Yet he's only seeing part of the situation. Oh, that can be us too. You see, we can look at our lives and only see part of the situation. We could not realize the full scope of what God is doing. And even in, as Christians, as followers, we can look around and go, Lord, what are you doing? It doesn't make any sense. Get me out of this. Make it stop, Lord. Make the, I don't like this trial. Make it end. Can I challenge you to say, Lord, teach me in it? Show me what it is you're trying to teach me. Change my heart. Help me open my eyes, Lord, to see the full scope of what it is that you're doing in my life because when we only look at one side or two sides we miss the third side we see the physical we see the mental but don't forget about the spiritual what does Paul tell us in Ephesians we don't struggle against flesh and blood but against principalities and rulers of darkness of this age you see there's a spiritual side out there don't neglect it don't over spiritualize things don't make everything so spiritual, you know, that it's just out there. You're, you're weird. People don't want to talk to you. But at the same time, don't neglect the fact that there's a spiritual side out there. You see, we don't want to be like the Syrians who are completely blind to who we're leading. And we don't want to be like the, the servant who only look partially at the situation. We don't want to be either one. Lord, open our eyes to who's leading us. Father, if we're leading ourselves, may you show us. If we're following something that's not true, may you show us. May you show us those things that are against us. Lord, may you give us a clear picture of what we're facing. May you show us what you're doing in our life. Give us understanding of the spiritual realm. Open our eyes so that we can see. Let us exercise our faith so that we can know that you're doing something here. May we not diminish our God to somebody or something so small that he has no power at all in our mind. Instead, may we exalt him, lift him on high, Realizing that he cares for us more than we care for ourselves. And he's able to comfort us and carry us through anything. He'll bring you through it. He'll get you through it. Don't be in a rush to get out of it. Let him teach you through it. Let him care for you through it. Let him build you up. Let him walk with you. Let him be there for you. Let him walk right alongside you through the difficult situation. He will be there comforting you the entire step of the way. When you start to get worried, give it back to him. When you start to freak out and think that you have to handle it yourself, give it back to him. Let him handle the situations in your life. I think we make far too many decisions without the Lord. Let him make the decisions. And if he says, wait, don't be like the king of Israel, what use is there waiting any longer? I'm done waiting. Oh, no. Waiting is doing something. Waiting is an action. You are waiting on the Lord and be proud of it. If you're in a season where you're waiting on the Lord for something, you keep right on waiting, and you plant your feet, you stand against the wiles of the enemy, and you don't move until the Lord says to move. Because any, any movement outside of where he has you planted right now is going to be disobedience. You wait until you have clear direction on what God wants you to do. Don't take one step without him leading you. You see, we don't want to be like either one of them. Instead, we want to be a group of believers that follow the Lord wholeheartedly. We don't want to follow somebody we can't see. Our, the, the person leading us is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we're following. God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's ministering to us, teaching us through his word. Now that curse and blessing was for the nation Israel, but I can promise you something. If you obey the word of God, there's going to be blessing that follows. And if you disobey the word of God, there's going to be cursing that follows. If you don't believe me, go on up to Walmart and steal something tonight and see what happens. There'll be a curse that follows because you'll find yourself sitting in handcuffs, getting in jail somewhere. Father, we come to you tonight as we look at this story and maybe we're wondering how it's going to end what you're going to do Elisha makes this big proclamation at the end that in one day your power will be seen in one day one one thing that they're inside this wall they can't even fathom how this would take place yet for you Lord it's nothing may we realize how big our God really is that will only make our problems seem so small May we not put our problems, our situations, our cares, or our concerns, or our worries above you, Lord. And we remember that it's above our, if it's above our head, it's still below your feet. You've got all things in control.